first of all to Job chapter 19. We read a few verses from Job 19, familiar verses, as the background for our confession of the resurrection of the body. And then we'll read a few verses from Revelation 21 as the background for our confession of the life everlasting. Job 19, we'll begin at verse 23 and read through verse 27. Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book. That they were graven with an iron pen and lead in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth, And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. Now we turn to Revelation chapter 21. And we will read the first eight verses. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write. For these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters And all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. There ends our reading of God's holy and inspired word on the basis of these passages and all of the scriptures. We turn to Lord's Day 22 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 22, what comfort doth the resurrection of the body afford thee? That not only my soul after this life shall be immediately taken up to Christ its head, but also that this my body being raised by the power of Christ shall be reunited with my soul 
and made like unto the glorious body of Jesus Christ, of Christ. What comfort takest thou from the article of life everlasting? That since I now feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, after this life I shall inherit perfect salvation, which I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man to conceive, and that to praise God therein forever. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Catechism has proceeded now from the doctrine of the church to some of the doctrines of eschatology, the doctrine of the last things or the end times. And we can look at eschatology from a personal point of view, and largely that is the perspective that the catechism takes throughout the whole catechism. And so there's per- some personal eschatology here. What is the end for me? What are the last things for me? Well, I have this life that I now live in this body. What happens after this life? And you'll notice that those three words, after this life, are included in both answers. The answer to question 57 and the answer to 58. What about after this life? And of course, the ecclesiastical perspective of eschatology is that these are benefits which Christ has obtained for the whole church and only for the whole church. There is a whole other part of eschatology which is for the unbelieving reprobate world and for them their end along with the fear who are the fearful, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their end, their personal eschatology, is the second death in the lake of fire. But we have the benefit of looking beyond this life and having comfort. And it's a comfort we enjoy now by hope and a comfort we shall enjoy then as these benefits are imparted to us. Even we have been given the beginning of it now, but we shall receive the fullness after this life. I pray and have prayed this week that our consideration of the Heidelberg Catechism and in this Lord's Day in particular, would be profitable for all of us and that it would be profitable for those who are in that shadowy valley. The shadowy valley that's spoken of in Psalm 23. And in the shadowy valley, there's all kinds of fears and there's all kinds of heartaches and there's all kinds of pain. And all of those shadows... They all come from one main enemy, and that is the sin which brings forth death. But in considering these benefits, we are brought to the cross of Jesus Christ and to the grave, which is now empty. And having that that grave being now empty, it's been vacated by our shepherd 
our shepherd who went to the grave, who died in our place, he's with us in the shadowy valley. And now we have the privilege of walking through that valley without fearing any evil. Because death and the sin which brings forth death has been swallowed up and taken away by our great and good shepherd. Let's consider our future and our future which is full of comfort. Comfort after this life. First of all, immediate comfort. Second, complete comfort. And third, eternal comfort. In the first point, when we treat the idea of comfort after this life, we want to look at the fact that we live in this life all of our days as long as God is pleased, and then there comes the moment that God has appointed for us to die, and we face the last and great enemy, or at least the remnants of that last and great enemy, and we have to consider that all that is in the former life ends. It's our life is our fellowship with that life is broken our fellowship with the people of that world is broken and our, we do not have that life anymore what is our comfort having lost and forfeiting so much in this earthly life our comfort immediately is that we have fellowship with God in our souls That's our immediate comfort. In our inner life, we consciously enjoy fellowship with Christ our head as a member of his body, and we shall through him have fellowship with God. At the instant of death, the believer receives the consequence of his own sin. Death is the judgment of God upon guilty sinners. And for every dying man or woman, we must go to the grave and we shall go to the grave contemplating the judgment of God. And especially as that day draws near and we see it drawing near, we come, we see the necessity of considering our own end. That's what the wise man does. The wise man who goes to the house of mourning rather than the house of feasting so that he can lay it to his heart This is my end. It's an end which is a judgment of God against the sin of man. I shall go to the dust. It's an end which follows the curse of God upon all creation. Death is not a natural enemy. Death is not in its all by itself a good thing. Death is a horrible, powerful judgment of God. And the only way that we can find comfort in the moments immediately after death is if we find it in Jesus Christ, the victor over death, who took the sting of death away for us and swallowed up the victory of the grave and now stands and even exalting himself over death and the grave. If we have any doubt about the power of the grave and the nature of death as a judgment of God, then we only need to consider the burden of it for ourselves and for our loved ones and how painful it is and how grieved we feel at the end of a life the loss of a family member or a friend and how it is quite natural for us to cleave to the things of this life 
It's only by faith and only through a great struggle and a constant struggle that we can look at death by faith and have a victorious, hopeful perspective. When we look to that time immediately after death, we're going to look at what we, is known as the intermediate state. The intermediate state is the period of time between this life, here's this life, we live, we're born, go through all of our years, maybe it's just a few moments, maybe it's a few weeks, maybe it's a few years, maybe it's a hundred years. Then there's a period of time called the intermediate state, which begins at the moment of death and ends at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, at the resurrection of the body. What is the believer's comfort immediately after death and all the way until our bodies are raised? After the intermediate state, when all our bodies shall be raised at once, then we have the everlasting state. The intermediate state, we can speak of it in terms of both believers and unbelievers. All men have, save for the last soul to die or be born, or in the living souls, when the Lord Jesus comes again, all men who die shall have an intermediate state. How long? Only the Lord knows. But Believers have an experience during that time, and so also do unbelievers. The experience of unbelievers is altogether comfortless, but the experience of believers who rest in Jesus, sleep, sleep in Jesus, they experience comfort. The comfort itself in the intermediate state is the catechism's most beautiful assumption. The most beautiful assumption of the catechism, at least in this Lord's Day, if not in all of the, the whole catechism, is those, begins with those words, not only, that not only my soul after this life shall be immediately taken up to Christ its head. And by those words, not only, the catechism is saying, you already know this. This is already a benefit that you possess and cherish and are confident that you shall receive. After this life, I know without a doubt, my soul shall be taken up immediately to Christ its head. And it can be an assumption and doesn't need its own treatment because it's so plainly taught in the Word. When Jesus was on the cross and he spoke to the dying but penitent malefactor, he said, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And he wasn't talking about fellowship that they'd have together in the body. Jesus' body that day was going to the grave, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. The malefactor's body was going to be taken down from the cross and cast upon a heap with other crucified criminals and eaten by the dogs or the birds. But Today, where the, while those bodies go to those deplorable places, the souls of Jesus and the penitent malefactor will be going to paradise and fellowshipping together. And that will happen 
immediately today, soon as they die, and that will happen verily, according to Jesus, emphasizing the truth of the statement so that we, so many generations later, can treat this doctrine as a beautiful assumption. We already know what happens to our souls when when we die. And it's something even our young children can learn. What happens when we die? We go to heaven. I shall be taken up to be with Jesus where he is. And they can even understand that when they consider that the cemetery is a place where our bodies go. Our bodies go down to the grave, but our souls will be with Jesus in heaven. Beautiful, simple truth. This is the same confidence that the psalmist had in Psalm 73, verse 23, when he confessed, Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. And then he explains it in the next verse. Continually with Jesus, continually through this life, continually into the next life, continually into the everlasting state. And the answer is yes, yes, and yes. Because thou dost guide me with thy counsel and afterward, after this life, Thou wilt receive me to glory. And this is the confidence of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1 when he speaks of, or, of his desire to die. He had a desire to die, a desire to depart because to die is gain. To live is Christ. To die is gain. And now he was conflicted within himself. He had a desire both to be here and to minister to God's people and also to be with the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. But his desire, because it was far better, was to be with Christ. And this is even the expressed prayer and the will of Jesus Christ, our great high priest, as we read in John chapter 17, because he prays, Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am. And where Jesus is now is in heaven. It's his will that we, who are given to him, should be with him. That will shall be done. This is an assumption based on the word that after this life, we shall be immediately enjoying conscious fellowship with God. It's so clear, and yet, historically, on that very point, it's been contradicted. And they have erred, there are those who have erred from this simple truth. The most famous of these departures is the do- Roman Catholic Church's doctrine of purgatory. For the Roman Catholic Church, there are different elements of the intermediate state. The Roman Catholic Church has a special place in the intermediate state for the soul immediately after this life. It's only for those who are in the state of grace. Those who are unbelievers, those who are are not in the grace of God according to their view, the Roman Catholic Church's view. Go to, do not go to purgatory, they go to hell. But 
those who are in a state of grace, after this life, they come to a place called purgatory. And purgatory is a place of purification. And they need to go to this place of purification in order that they can achieve the, the holiness that is necessary to enter heaven. Those souls, those people are not holy enough for heaven, and so they must go to a place called purgatory and be purged of their sins. Of course, the Roman Catholic Church weaponizes this doctrine, this false doctrine, and weaponize the imperfections that are evident to us on this earth for their own profit through the use of indulgences, and they do so without shame of undermining the perfection of of Jesus Christ's work and Jesus Christ's righteousness. The other error that is, has been taught throughout history is less popular, less known, and yet prop, at times more of a common misunderstanding because of the Bible passages that speak of death in terms of sleeping And so the doctrine of soul sleep at different times in history, particularly in the days around John John Calvin's lifetime, needed to be written against. Soul sleep is the doctrine that teaches that the soul immediately after this life is not conscious of anything positively or negatively, but just goes to sleep and is not aware of either glory or of judgment. And all those who die, or at least the believers who die, they sleep and they wait unconscious until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ awakens them and raises them up unto life and glory forever. That state of being unconscious after death is hardly better than the limbo of purgatory. Both of these errors contradict the plain teaching of Scripture. They undermine the union of believers to Christ, the perfection of His righteousness, and they undermine the essence of the covenant of grace which God has promised and that Jesus Christ has obtained. What God has promised and what Jesus has obtained by His perfect sacrifice on the cross is fellowship. Gracious fellowship. And those errors break the fellowship of God and His people in Jesus Christ. When we confess the resurrection of the, or when we confess the comfort of the intermediate state, we are making a very simple application of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and the essence of the covenant. The sufficiency of Christ is that He has saved us from death and from all the pain of death and from all the sting of death so that we endure death in victory and we receive blessings immediately after death and through death. And the doctrine of the covenant is that everlasting relationship of friendship and fellowship. It's a relationship of grace and love and favor. And it's found in the blessedness of it is in communion with God. 
The gospel makes known that relationship. And by faith in that word and in Jesus Christ, we lay hold on that benefit in life and in death. Confessing the comfort of the intermediate state is also a tremendously practical confession. It's practical for us, as every one of us, to varying degrees, walks in the valley of the shadow of death. And particularly when we come to our own end and we go and we consider our end in the grave, we have no fear, no worry, but we have peace and we have joy and we have confidence because the victor over death is with us. It's even practical beyond putting our fears to rest. It's practical in that it excites us for the moment of death. That's harder for me, harder for us, I am confident. We relish the comfort of death and receive that as, I don't need to be afraid. I don't need to worry about death being a punishment for sin. I know Jesus Christ has taken my sin away. It's harder for us because we so love this life to now relish death and look forward to the day when we shall be taken up to Christ our head. That's the one thing we desire, isn't it? To be with him, to see the beauty of his tabernacle. We can eagerly anticipate death as a work of God to deliver us to himself. The second point of the sermon is concerns our complete comfort after this life. And now here's where we turn to the resurrection of the body. The immediate comfort in the intermediate state is the assumption of question and answer 57. What happens to our soul? But when we confess the resurrection of the body, we are looking forward to the after this life and really after the intermediate state. That's when the resurrection of the body will take place. The hope of the resurrection really completes the believer's comfort in this life already. Because in this life, we can look forward and we can look beyond the moment of death and say, at that time, my soul will go up to heaven. But because we also confess the resurrection of the body, we can say, though my body for a time will go to the grave, my body shall also be taken up to be with Christ and be made like unto Christ. And so we have comfort in the resurrection of the body, even in this life, because we have that to look forward to. But then the work of the res resurrection of the body, we understand that that won't take place until the day when Jesus comes again. So there's no doubt, if we look at the doctrine of the resurrection, there's no doubt that our body, our flesh, goes to the grave when we die. And it turns to dust. And it rapidly rots and corrupts. 
Job in his confession in Job 19 speaks of the worms, the worms that destroy his body. That's the end of his flesh. And that had already begun during Job's affliction as he had to scrape off his skin from all the boils that Satan had inflicted upon him. And then in another passage that helps us see the corruption of the grave is in John chapter 11 with Mary and Martha and Jesus and the Jews who were sorrowing over Lazarus' dead. You remember what Mary said to Jesus after he had been in there for, in the grave for four days? She, Martha said, Lord, by this time he stinketh. That's the end of our bodies in the grave. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, that chapter that deals so completely with the resurrection, speaks of the nature of death as the planting of a seed, and then that seed is brought to life and brings forth more fruit and flowers and beauty. But that which is sown is not quickened unless it die. There needs to be a death That seed dies before it germinates and springs forth into life. So there is a death, there is a corruption, there is a defilement, a a stench of death. In our present bodies, we're not fit for the kingdom of heaven. If that's what our bodies can become, these bodies aren't fit for the everlasting state. But still a mature believer, though we may shed many tears over the death of a loved one, we're not really bothered by the corruption of this body. Perhaps there is a younger person, someone who hasn't been to a funeral in their life, maybe. Someone who loses a loved one for the first time, someone close to them, and they are overwhelmed, perhaps, at the deceased body, which is going to turn to dust. But by and large in the church, from the old to the young, very quickly we come to understand that it's okay, it's good to let that body go, to let the funeral home And the people that work there come and take the body and bring it away and not be with that body and not hold on to that body. At one point over the last several years, I spoke to one of the funeral home directors in the area. It was after the death of one of our members and in talking to him for a few minutes, he pointed out what a precious truth it is of the resurrection of the body. And he, he mentioned that he sees how, how practical it is. And he sees the power of this confession of the resurrection. Because when, as a funeral home, they go to the home of an unbeliever and find the body, take the body of one who is an unbeliever and a family who is unbelievers, they, they don't want them to take the body. Don't take the body. They just need a few more minutes with, with their loved one. It's just their body. They're not here anymore. Their soul's been taken away. It's where God has, it's gone to where God has appointed it. 
for the intermediate state and for all of eternity. There's nothing here in the body to be enjoyed. It's dust and it's going to stink. But in the homes of believers, when the funeral home comes to take away the body, the the people there who mourn and grieve with many tears, they're not bothered. Take the body. They sit together, they talk together, they cry together, and all the while they sing together, and all the while the funeral workers at the funeral home are coming and they're taking the body and they're taking it away and they might, with a moment of silence, let it go. But then they turn their attention quickly back to the communion of saints, enjoyed together because they confess that that body shall be raised. And until that time, it's dust. There are three aspects of the resurrected body that, and of the resurrection that are taught in this question and answer. They all start with the letter R. The first is that there's a reunion. There's a reunion of the body and the soul. We go through this life and at the moment of death there's a separation. The body goes down to the grave. The soul's taken up to Christ its head. There's a separation. And that separation continues all the way through the intermediate state. And then at the resurrection of the body, the soul's not brought back down, but the body's brought back up. And there's a reunion of the body and the soul so that they are one whole again. And that that person is complete according to God's good creation. This is our confidence. This was Job's confidence as Job said, In my flesh, with my eyes and not of another, I shall see God. And that will be the perfection of our salvation, including the reunion of our bodies and souls. That that reunion is important so that we can experience everlasting life as God intended in body and in soul. The second aspect of the resurrection is restoration. The restoration of this my body. It's not a, it is a new creation, the new body, but not in the sense that I do not have any connection to my resurrection body. I do have a connection to my resurrection body, even from my former life. All that is defiled has been purged away. It's been given a new character, which is fit for the kingdom of heaven. But the body that I called mine, all my life long, I shall shall be restored so that I still have the body that God gave me. Take care of your bodies, beloved Take care of your bodies. Appreciate the bodies that God has given to you. Use your bodies. Be thankful for your bodies. And do not give in to the temptations of the flesh to rebel against God and despise your body that God has given to you or to mistreat it or abuse it. That body will be restored. And the third element is related in that restoration of this my body it will be a complete renewal. The essence of this renewal is that our bodies shall be made like unto the glorious body of Christ. 
that makes us fit for heaven, that makes us to shine with his glory and to give a, be a living testimony to the power of his grace and the power of his resurrection. It will be a glorious day when our souls are reunited with our bodies, our bodies are restored, and that they are renewed. We enjoy this comfort now, as I mentioned. The benefit's not been given yet, but we enjoy the comfort of it now because we live by hope. The day of the resurrection is coming, and we have no doubt of it. There's no more blessed thing than that when we do go to the cemetery and we do watch that body being lowered to the grave, that we can confess that that grave has been sanctified by the righteous presence of Jesus Christ. That's what he did when he went to the grave. He went to the grave having paid the price for all of our sins. And when he and his righteousness went there, he laid a foundation for us so that in that grave we are on the rock, on his righteousness, and we shall be lifted up. It's not sinking sand. It's not going to swallow us up. We rest in the grave, and though it rots and corrupts unto dust, it shall be restored. Finally, the confession that we make concerning the life everlasting is also a confession of comfort. And so now we're looking, even from this life, we're looking forward to the everlasting state, and we know that in that state, in that time period which has no end, that it shall be the perfection of our salvation and the fullness of life. That's the end that God has appointed for us in his eternal counsel. Before the worlds were framed, he conceived in himself that there should be fellowship with these his people forever. That is the end which was secured for us who are sinners by the humiliation and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. That is the end which is being already worked in us by the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ so that God in His mercy in this life, in these corrupt bodies, gives us to feel the beginning of everlasting life and joy. This is the end for the whole body. And thus it is the blessedness of the church so that we can look to our brothers and sisters, and though we, will, we know that there will be much that changes from this life to the life to come, that we shall commune with one another forever in heaven, why shall we not then commune in peace and in love with one another on earth? The Catechism speaks of this perfect salvation being inherited. It means that it shall be, life everlasting shall be given to us as heirs. And heirs do not earn their inheritance. Heirs are given it by virtue of a relationship. And that's the relationship that we have 
to Jesus Christ and to God for his sake, we are his children. And this inheritance is indescribable. I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man to conceive. It's such a glorious inheritance that the scriptures, especially Revelation 21, which we read earlier, have to use the negative to describe it. Can't say positively in very much detail what it shall be. What we can say is that God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. Those are the former things. Positively, the future things, all things are made new. The tabernacle of God shall be with men. We are a bride adorned for our husband. We have new life. And we enter a new state of everlasting salvation. Every spot and infirmity of sin is put away, and thus no more can death be brought forth. No more shall there be any separation from God. No more more are there any consequences of the sin which we once dealt with as the former things. And this life everlasting is a certainty. We feel it already. And we feel it as a pledge of the fullness that shall be granted to us. We feel that new life. We have those holy desires. We look forward to the end of this life. We love to serve God. We delight in the keeping of His commandments. And no, not perfectly. But that desire in us and the joy of being a child of God is a testimony and a pledge to us that we shall have the fullness of it forever. It's not treated in the catechism proper, but in the Apostles' Creed, we always conclude with an amen. When we conclude the Apostles' Creed with an amen, we are saying amen to all of the truth and all of the benefits that have been put on our lips, but we even say it with regard to life everlasting and the resurrection of the body. As surely as Christ has entered his glorified state, so surely we shall live forever with him. Let us make this our confession today, all our days, in health and in sickness in the strength of youth and in the weakness of old age, that since I now feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, after this life I shall inherit perfect salvation. God is faithful. He's begun already. He shall complete His work, and He shall complete it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, may the day of the Lord Jesus come quickly. May the souls of the grieving be comforted by this gospel. May our confidence be unshakable and immovable as we cleave to Jesus who took away our sin, which was the source of all of our pain and even the pains of death. 
And may we press on and persevere even through those moments of great grief. And as we wait for the day to come, may we be fervent in our prayers and steadfast in our confession of the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen.